Happy Easter, everyone. Good morning. It's great to be together. It's great to share this space. Once again, I want to echo it. So many of my friends up here have said this morning, if you're new here, we're, we're thrilled that you're here and uh, excited to get to share worship with you. My name is Tracy, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and Dan Meyer is our senior pastor. He's here this morning, too. He's preaching over in the sanctuary, and I know that if any of you after service today want to meet him or mingle with any of our other staff, there's tons of donuts, right? Donuts is always what it takes to get people to mingle, right? So there's tons of donuts and coffee and all sorts of good stuff. Um, you're surrounded by a lot of great people. And uh, it, is, it is a joy uh, to be able to share God's word with you uh, here on Easter. How many of you, uh, whether you agree that it's good or not, um, sometimes watch reality TV, right? Yeah, sometimes some of us do, right? Uh, I'm a sucker for like the home improvement shows and HDTV and stuff like that. And I'm also a sucker for Undercover Boss. Has anybody ever seen Undercover Boss, right? It's probably a total hoax, and I get that. But uh, if you've never watched uh, the show Undercover Boss, it's where... Um, a CEO or a leader of a company uh, on the show, they've had everyone from the CEO of NASCAR, Chiquita, Waste Management, Stella and Dot. They've had the mayor of Pittsburgh on this show, and they put on like a wig and, you know, try to be like unrecognizable, and they go work the front desk or the assembly line where the average Jane or Joe in a corporation is working. And whatever they struggle with, right, the idea is that the undercover boss is going to sort of kind of help transform the company. And there's always this moment in the show where where, and of course at the end, right, perfectly planned, where the, 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 the worker realizes, oh, right, they're with like the CEO, they're with the undercover boss, as if the camera's following them around the whole time didn't give it away, right? But just work with me on it, right? <laughs> uh, you know, Mary in, this, in our scripture story for today sort of has this, she has this undercover boss moment. This is this case of mistaken identity, Jesus died. Jesus is the leader of this fledgling group of friends, a growing movement. He was their beloved teacher. He was the one they spent their time with, they chased after, they desired to be with, and Jesus is dead. And they're just trying to sort out what happened. It's the day after all of it goes down. It's after everybody leaves and the funeral is over and the casseroles are sort of just sitting there and nobody knows what to do. And so Mary, Mary doesn't know what to do with her grief, so she goes, she goes to check on things. She wants to make sure everything's all right. She sneaks out before dawn. She sneaks out alone. Maybe she just wants to sort of be near his presence one more time. And she arrives in the garden and she arrives at the tomb and, and she realizes that the body is gone. I mean, did someone steal the body? How, how could this be? Because Jesus was so irritating to the Roman government. He caused so much strife and confusion among the Jewish leadership. And to keep his body in the tomb, away from grave robbers and anybody who would uh, create a hoax out of this, to, to do that was of utmost importance. And there's this giant, massive, like it takes multiple people to move it into place, stone that's placed in front of the tomb. And there's armed guards there. And Mary shows up and the, the tomb is open, right? And she comes to check on things and, and, and something's gone wrong. So she dashes back to her friends and she gets Peter and the other disciple, which as a side note, how, 
would you like to be known in scripture as the guy that got outran? I don't know if you noticed that. Like, why put that in there? I, at least they were gracious enough not to list the guy's name, but like, you're forever the guy that got outran on his way to the tomb. Like, that's just a funny, I don't know why God did that. Maybe he just thought we would laugh at that someday, but, um, right? So, and they walk in. They go in and all of a sudden it makes sense, right? They see the grave cloths. They see that they're undisturbed, as if someone like rose like a chrysalis out of them, right? And then the head cloth is all folded up neatly. And all of a sudden, all the things that they remember him saying start to come into focus. Like they didn't know that this was going to happen, but then he had said that it was going to happen and they just missed it. It's almost like when, um, I don't know how many of you have ever, you know, tried to work your way with binoculars and binoculars always stress me out, right? Because it's always like this and you can't figure out what you're doing. Then all of a sudden you get it right and whatever you're looking at just slams into focus. And this is what happened to the other disciple and Simon Peter. They, all of a sudden it, it added up and then they take off again to go get everybody else. Mary stays, Mary lingers. She's not quite sure what is going on. And there's a guy there, and she thinks he's the gardener, right? She's like, sir, if you stole the body, if you moved the body, you know, it's not bad enough that this man we loved was crucified, that he was mocked, that now we don't know what to do, that we're lost and we're sad and we're desperate. Now somebody has gone off to steal the body Sir, if you, could you, it's just, if you know where the body is, could you just have the common decency to tell me is basically what Mary is saying to him. And then he says her name, and she gets it. That familiar tone, that warm voice, the voice of compassion and grace and mercy. And she turns around and she sees Jesus. He has risen she feels the presence of God in that garden. Now, if you look back through scripture, so many of our deep faith stories take place in the garden. You know, God could have chosen any metaphor to teach us about life and about death and about resurrection and about purpose, and he chose a garden, something we could all relate to. He could have chosen astrophysics or neuroscience and half of us would have checked out, right? But he chose a garden because we, we get that things grow. You know, I am uh, I'm not much of a gardener. I, I wish I was. And every year I plunge my hands into the earth in our backyard and I try to force up enough vegetables for summer dinner table. My kids... Uh, take part in, in the gardening experience with me. Uh, we try to pull tomatoes up and green beans and bell peppers and broccoli. And I think that we even have a slide I've got up there of uh, my family trying to garden in our backyard. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. We're not gardeners. We're awful at it. We're awful. We put things in the ground and we have hummus and we have manure and we're trying to figure out and everything looks good and there's little seeds planted and there's little rows of plants and we step back and it looks great, like something actually is gonna happen. It's so filled with potential. And we fertilize and we water and then I get really lazy pulling the weeds and by mid-July I give up on the weeds my husband Joel takes over because he just can't stand to watch it all go. 
Usually a basketball or a baseball or a squirt gun lands somewhere in the garden along the way, and the neighbor kids or my own kids trample the plants. There's a fledgling row of cucumbers that barely makes it because they've had a basketball land squarely on it, and by August, everything turns brittle and dry, and I'm back at the grocery store trying to buy the vegetables that I thought we were going to grow. And our lives, right, are like this a bit. We're so full of potential. We're born. We're planted. We have everything we need to contribute to the world. We have inside of us the ability to be painters and writers and runners and jumpers and dancers and movers and creators and builders and designers and architects. It's in all of us. And like seeds, we're placed so gently into the ground. And all we need to contribute to the world is good, fertile soil, right? And our success often depends on the soil. But sometimes we all know this, right? The climate is harsh and people forget to water us or sometimes we make a bad decision and we lose our ability to grow. And we find ourselves wondering then in the garden where everything was supposed to be so good, why is the sun beating down so relentlessly? Why are the surroundings so rocky? Why is it hard to find our way? Why is there so much evil or hatred? Why does it seem like sorrow has no end? Why is empty feel like a bad thing? Why are we out of gas and time and money and resources and love and energy? And why do I feel so empty all the time? I'm going to time out for a quick second. Can you do me a huge favor? I need a glass of water. (laughs) Sorry, you guys. Right? It's no mistake that we have garden metaphors. Gethsemane. Thank you, Chad. Appreciate that. Sorry. (laughs) Jesus is betrayed in the garden of Gethsemane. When he had finished praying... Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley, and on the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed them, knew the place, because Jesus has often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and officials from chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons, and they betrayed him in the garden. We have three different garden stories that are just pinnacles and pillars of our faith. In that dark garden of Gethsemane, it wasn't the first garden that we are told about in scripture. The first garden is the garden of Eden, right? It's where life begins. It's the opening pages of our shared story. A loving God who, not out of need or out of abundance and joy, creates a perfect world. It's a world that is lush and vibrant. There is no jealousy or hate or war or tragedy. There is no lust for power or betrayal. There's only beauty and the elaborate majesty and glory of God on display. There is perfect communion between people, between the human and the divine. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Better than my voice apparently is. I'm so sorry. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Friends, God gave power to Adam and Eve in that garden. He made them creators. 
He gave them the power to build and to flourish and to grow and to name and to reproduce and to cultivate the garden. And the goodness of that garden was not enough to satisfy. In just three chapters into scripture, we are an absolute disaster, grasping for the small bit of power that we weren't allowed to have. We're tilling barren soil. We have betrayed, we have murdered, we have grasped after that which was not ours. There is hunger and war and famine and terror. And we wonder why. But you know what? Here's the beauty of that original garden. All was not lost. There are glimpses of the garden. There are Easter moments around us every single day. And I spent last week on spring break in the mountains. And I woke up in the morning and I walked outside and I just took in <clears throat> the majesty of it all. I saw a little bit of that original garden as I walked across the Colorado Rockies. Some of you were on spring break last week. You had that same feeling. And you don't need to be on spring break for it. Whenever you feel love, whenever you feel peace, whenever you catch the sly smile of someone that you love, or those times where you find an old friend and you laugh, like so deep from your gut, your abs hurt the next day, right? When you move yourself into the full presence of another person, when you hold a baby, whether it's yours or not, and you just feel that freshness of a new life, these are garden moments. The garden is visible and available to us. It's in limited form and it isn't in focus in the binoculars like we want it to be, but we feel that first garden. We feel God the creator come through our life. But there's a second garden story and it's the story we have for this day. Despite the armed guards and despite the, the attempt to stop theft and to stop the hoax, the body of Jesus was gone. Hundreds of witnesses testified to seeing it. The grave cloths were undisturbed. It made no sense. The beginning believers were, they were, they were confounded by this. And when we're told that the resurrected Lord was seen. It dramatically changed people. It wasn't just like, hey, look, there's Jesus. I thought that guy was dead. No. I mean, it transformed life. Complete, unbelieving cowards. Like Peter and Thomas and all these people just who didn't get it all of a sudden got it. And, and they didn't just walk away like, hey, that was cool. I mean, it changed their life. Renowned scholar, New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright reminds us, he says, there were many messianic movements in the first century. This wasn't the first story like this. He says, in every case, though, the would-be Messiah of those other causes was crucified by Rome, just as Jesus was, and not in one single case do we hear the slightest mention of disappointed believers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. It wasn't a story that, that anybody even thought to make up. I mean, this is the power of the resurrection. Christians believe this really happened. This is our belief. And throughout history, we have retold this story. I mean, if you look at literature, you even look at, at film from the last 50 years, uh, Lord of the Rings, the stories of Tolkien, the story of Star Wars, right? I mean, this is the narrative of our history. Redemption of good, redemption, resurrection. 
Pastor and author Will Willimon was once asked, he's, he's a famous pastor, and he was asked in an interview, he said, why do you need a supernaturally resurrected body? Why do you need the body of Jesus to make your life work? And Willimon interestingly said this, he goes, I don't actually need a resurrected Jesus. I don't want a resurrected Jesus. He goes, come to think of it, I'm not sure I want that resurrected Jesus. He goes, because in one sense, a resurrected Jesus is a real nuisance for me, Willimon says. He goes, personally, I've got a good life. I figured out how to work the world on the whole to my advantage and the advantage of my friends and family. My health is good. Most of the people close to me are doing fine, he says. He says, I have the illusion that I'm in control. He goes, I don't actually need a resurrected Jesus. He goes, because in fact, once I truly embrace the resurrection of Jesus, which he does, he goes, my life becomes infinitely more difficult. The resurrection of Jesus changes people. There was no one in that first moment who encountered the resurrected Jesus and didn't walk away transformed. That is the power of the resurrection. That is what we celebrate on this day. And we celebrate that that resurrection, that creator God and that resurrected God brings us at the end of scripture to a third garden. Scripture begins in a garden and it ends in the garden. And the resurrection story that is all that it hinges on takes place in a garden, right in the middle. And at the end of scripture in Revelation, we read this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God. And on each side stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit. And the leaves of the tree, scripture tells us, are for the healing of the nations. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is once again among people. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. God is the God of restoration. The point of the resurrection is not to just walk away unchanged. The point of the resurrection is to restore our lives and the lives of the people that we know and those we will never meet to the beauty of the garden. You know, our... Our garden, like I said, is an absolute disaster by the end of summer. And by mid-October, I head outside and I start pulling the chicken wire out and I start pulling um, the, the, the tomato cages out of the ground. And I always, in mid-October, long after the first frost, find a couple renegade grape tomatoes. How many of you love the taste right of a homegrown tomato, right? I'm so good. And there's always a couple of renegade tomatoes that have somehow made it. I don't know if they were tucked up underneath another plant or what happened to them that they survived the frost. I usually don't tell anybody in my family I have found the tomatoes because they will want them. And I sit there in the garden and I pop the last three or four tomatoes into my mouth. Something has been restored in the earth. The soil had just enough nutrients to give those last few tomatoes to restore something of the disaster that we completely made my family in that place. And this is part of what John's vision is like. This is what God will do. He will bring fruit from the dry, cracked earth of this life. 
We are told that at the end of time, there will be healing for the nations, for this terrorized, war-torn, genocide, ISIS, greed, whatever it is, you name it, there will be restoration for that. N.T. Wright says that the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. The after all, this is what the Lord's prayer is actually about. Christianity is not a religion about getting airlifted out of here at the end as fast as we can. The resurrection isn't just to make us all feel good while we're biding our time here on earth waiting for the next thing. The Christian faith is a belief that because of the creator God and because of the resurrection, we can go about the business of restoration and we can be people of the resurrection in that way. Elise de Wolf says this, it's one of my favorite quotes. I am going to make everything around me beautiful and this will be my life. This is what we are to celebrate on Easter is that the Lord has risen so that we can do good things. Now I, I admit and I understand it's comical for me to stand up here as a preacher and represent the church globally because most people would say religion, golly, Find me a war that you know, wasn't started somewhere by religion, perhaps, right? I mean, find me something that hasn't been done in the name of Jesus that wasn't actually mean. You know, there's a bumper sticker. I've seen, many of us have seen it. It says, it says uh, Lord Jesus, save me from your followers, right? Have you ever seen that? Right? I mean, Christians are not always known as the warmest and cuddliest people. You know, and, and we do things that... The church does things that perpetuate this. When, when we were leaving, um, we were in Breckenridge this week, and when we were leaving Breckenridge, we had to leave to drive home on a, on a blue sky nine-inch powder day, which if any of you are skiers know that, that's just heartbreaking. Some of you are not skiers. You're like, why would you not want to drive as fast as you could away from nine inches of snow, right? And we were leaving, and, and what happens in Colorado is that as soon as it snows, the entire city of Denver gets up to the mountains as fast as they can. And there were hundreds of cars flooding in and hundreds of vacationers flooding out. And, and in Frisco, right on the corner, um, we see a dude wearing a huge black cloak <coughs> and like a pontiff hat. And he's got a wooden cross in one hand and he's got a Bible in the other and he's just shaking it at every car that goes by. And my husband Joel looks at me, he goes, hey honey, look, there's your people. <laughs> I was like, seriously, seriously, right? When I, uh, I was in my undergrad, I went to uh, University of Iowa, and uh, on, on the main part of our campus, uh, every now and then there was a guy, which was, he, he would be dressed in red to, uh, head-to-toe red spandex with a cape. If that's not weird enough, right? He had a Bible, and he would never say anything. He would just like, go like this with his cape, and he would, like, he would like, walk, run up to students and just go like this with the Bible, right? I mean, he was laughable. It was comical. This, this is sometimes what we're known for, right? I mean, this isn't what Jesus died and was resurrected for. You know, I, I, I'm a pastor. I'm proud to be a pastor. I believe in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But it's also such a conversation killer when you go somewhere and someone says, well, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Whoa. <laughs> they don't know what to do with it, right? When you go to a wedding, I, as a pastor, I do a lot of weddings. And, and, and people graciously and kindly invite me to the, to the, 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 um, the reception, and I always have to sit at the weird table in the back, right? 
You know how any of you have been married or you've been to a wedding, you don't know what to do with people, right? There's like the extras. There's like the neighbor that you used to live with. There's the weird third cousin. There's the dog sitter, your ex-boss, and the pastor. Let's put all those people at a table in the back, right? And so, I know, it's awkward. It's awkward. You know, and then so you walk, you go around the table and people are like, hey, what do you do for a living, you know? And people are like, oh, great, I love Jesus too. Or people are like, oh, ah, you know, they, it's, it's, religion is tainted at best. At best, it's tainted. We're known for weird people in capes and spandex and, and the weird people at the table, right? This is not, this is not the story of Jesus. This is not what Jesus was resurrected for. Jesus was resurrected so that we could be about restoration. John 10.10 says this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full so that the gardens of our lives may burst open and overflow. This is the story of Jesus. He came to restore and to resurrect, and he created us to be people that do the same. I'll close with a story um, that I stumbled across uh, while I was reading, actually. We drove to Denver. I had 16 hours to read stuff. And so I was reading about a gentleman named Ken Helphand. Ken is a landscape architecture professor at the University of Oregon. And he's also the author of a book that's called Defiant Gardens. And uh, Helpen says this. He notes that most of us equate gardens with luxury, right? If you think of the English gardens and you think of uh, the gardens of Versailles or the ancient gardens um, like in cities like Babylon or the serene sort of meditative gardens of the East in places like Japan. And he says, rarely do we associate gardens with oppression, And he says, though, that there's the opposite end of a spectrum, that in his research, he stumbled across photos and stories of what he calls defiant gardens, gardens that sprung up in some of the most helpless, seemingly lifeless places in the world. And in particular, he followed what he called the defiant gardens in four places. Most of them had to do with war. Soldiers on the Western Front of World War I, in all that dark and dismal dismay, managed to sneak gardens and grass and flowers and artillery shells and other places. They found seeds and they hid gardens on the Western Front of World War I. Gardens were created by POWs in both world wars. They wrote stories about them that he found. Japanese Americans who found themselves in internment camps during World War II, they created secret, defiant gardens. There were gardens found in Warsaw under the Nazi occupation, and there have been stories of gardens recently found by soldiers who created them in Kuwait. Right? Defiant gardens. And Help Hand talks about what a redeeming and restorative art it was to plunge their hands into the dirt and to bring something beautiful and restorative and to resurrect something of life into dark and hard places. Henry Mitchell says that defiance is what makes gardeners. Part of the Easter story, friends, is defying 
all that limits us and all the darkness and all the hardship of life, defying it because we worship the God of resurrection and life and joy and human flourishing. Wendell Berry invites people, he says, you should practice resurrection. The invitation for us this day is to believe and to repeat that refrain that he has risen and he has risen indeed. And if we believe, then we should be about restoration and renewal. Our call as people of faith, if you believe, is to be gardeners and to practice resurrection and to bring renewal and restoration and the message of the hope and the love and the joy of the gardener himself with us in our lives everywhere we go. What a joy it would be if people of faith were not known for perpetuating hatred and war, but were known instead for being people of peace and life and flourishing in the garden. Amen, right? Think of how our world would be transformed if we actually did that. So let's be people that do that. Let's practice the resurrection of Jesus every single day. And whether you actually can put seeds in the ground or not, be a gardener. Grow something beautiful because it's the invitation that God gives to us. Sprinkle joy and love and peace and forgiveness and grace everywhere we go because that is what the gardener does to us and that is what our invitation is to do in return. Amen? Happy Easter. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are the master gardener, that under your watch, things don't wilt and die. And Lord, sometimes this side of heaven, it sure feels like they do. But the reality is that you do resurrect. You do restore life. You do create. And you invite all of us to be agents of the same. So Lord, help us be people of the garden. And help us remember that empty finds a new meaning in you. And that this is the day that empty leads us to all the good and glorious things. In Jesus' name we pray these things. And all of God's people said, amen.